Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for this day, and we just ask that you would anoint this place with the power of the presence of your Holy Spirit. Father, God, just open up our hearts and our eyes to just listen to your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I know I've shared this before, but when I was in high school, I was a part of my school's track team, and I ran the 110-meter high hurdles, and I was actually fairly decent at it. Now, when I was in elementary school, and even when I was in junior high school, um, I was I was actually one of the fastest kids in, in, in my grade, but as I hit ninth grade and I hit my growth spurt, my legs actually began to lengthen out, um, I lost just a little bit of that speed. Um, and so I started to realize pretty quickly that I was no longer one of the fastest people on the track, and so in order to run the 110 meter high hurdles and to try to do that well and effectively, I knew that I needed to do a couple of things pretty well. Uh, number one, I knew I had to work on my technique. I had to develop a technique that it would allow me to run the race as effectively as I could to do well, and so I did. I learned you don't jump over hurdles, you run over hurdles, and so I, I would work on that, and I would work on technique, and the other thing I had to work on was my starts. I had to learn how to effectively, most efficiently, come out of the starting blocks. And so I would work and I would work on that. And what I started to find was um, I really was effective going over hurdles, always leading with my right leg. So my right leg would be the first one over the hurdle and my left one would trail. And I started through trial and error to figure out the best way to set those starting blocks so I could attack that first hurdle. And if I made that first hurdle, if I cleared it well, essentially every race from that point on, I took three strides in between hurdles. I would go over with my right leg, three strides, right leg, and that was all the way down the track. However, if my blocks were off just the littlest bit, or if I didn't get out to maybe a strong start like I needed to, uh, sometimes I've, that's where things could happen that, well, they, they would be rather unfortunate. I remember this, this uh, one meet that we had. Uh, our school, we, we, we had traveled to um, another school to participate in this meet, and we had arrived just a few moments before the meet was supposed to start. Now, the hurdles um, are one of the first events of the meet, and I remember getting there and barely having time to get off the bus, kind of try to do just a quick little lap around the track, stretch as quickly as I could. By the time I got over to uh, the race, Everybody else had their blocks set, and I'm trying to set my blocks as quickly as I can. I started to panic a little bit, and I realized I don't even have time to, like, try to come out of these things and make sure everything is right. So I just set them, got into the blocks, and, and the race was about to start. And, and, and so, you know, obviously the, the guy who starts the race, you know, brought us to our attention. He fired the gun, and as soon as I took off, I realized something was wrong. Something felt totally off. And by the time I got to the first hurdle, I realized I was not going to reach it with my right leg lead. Um, I was going to hit it with my left leg because in my haste, in my hurry, I had set the blocks in reverse. And so when I got to that first 
hurdle. It felt a little weird, but I knew I was going to have to do it. I threw my right leg up to lead. My, my, I'm sorry, my left leg up to lead. My right leg came through, but what happened was I drug it right through the hurdle. And so I actually hit the hurdle and split the thing in two. And when that happened, it caused me to stumble on the track. And I realized that this was not good. And so I tried to shuffle, I tried to shift, and I tried to take off to where I could hit it with my right leg. But things were off off at this point. And so in the process of not running over the hurdle, but jumping over the hurdle, um, I caught my right leg then. And that time I about did fall and I just had to stop. In the middle of a race that's not very long is usually over in about anywhere from, you know, 14 to 16 seconds. Uh, I stop and I have to try to figure out my legs and I take off and I'm able to finish the race. I don't really remember a whole lot of my races but I remember that one. It's one of the few races that I finished dead last. In fact, I think it's the only time in my whole high school career I failed to qualify for the finals. And I learned a valuable life lesson that day. I learned that you have to get off to a good start. You know, sprinters, they do everything they can to properly set those blocks they take a great deal of time learning how to position themselves to come out correctly so they have an advantage so they can get off to the best, most fluent, most efficient start possible. And this lesson, it, 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 it was huge. It's important to get off to a good start, and so that's what we want to do with this new series. We want to get off to a good start. As we look at our BCC core values we have to start in the right place. And so, spoiler alert, I'm going to give you our BCC big idea right here at the very beginning because it's our very first core value. And it's this, that Scripture is our starting point. Scripture is our starting point. This is our very first core value. Last week, Pastor Derek, he, he was introducing this series to us and he read a passage out of the book of Acts and this passage, it shows what the early church looked like. What I hope that you will notice each week as we go through this series that each and every one of our core values, it's based on Scripture. It's based on this passage. You're going to find that each of our core values can be looked at and taken right here. Why? Because Scripture is our starting point. If you'll read with me Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And, and uh, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you notice the first thing it says that they devoted themselves to? It was to the apostles' teaching. And listen, we use the term apostles' teaching as a way to describe the true and consistent teaching of the New Testament. The apostles, they taught the truth 
about who Jesus Christ was. They taught the gospel message. They taught about the way in which Jesus himself, he fulfilled all the Old Testament scriptures in order to bring his people through his sacrificial death for our sins on that cross. And then also his resurrection. This is something that they did not make up on their own. This is something that Jesus himself revealed to them through himself and also through his Holy Spirit. At this point, Jesus has made it clear to them that their teaching was to be consistent with his. In fact, in John 8, 31, Jesus told them, he says, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. So valuing Scripture as our starting point, it should be of the utmost importance in all of our lives. And the reason I believe this is because when we value Scripture as our starting point, it will bring truth, it will bring unity, and it brings life change. In his book, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible, John Dixon, he writes, The Bible is history's number one bestseller by a factor of ten. Over 6 billion copies have been sold, and it's been number one in sales every year that records have been kept, except for 2007. It's all because of a little book called Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows. <laughs> that one topped the list that year at 42 billion, I'm sorry, 42 million copies. Billion would be a lot. 42 million sales. Listen, in 2009 alone, when we look at Scripture, the Bible sold more than 30 million copies That's 82,000 copies per day, 3,400 copies per hour. That means that someone purchases a Bible every second. The Bible is available in around 2,500 languages. Harry Potter, just 55. (laughs) Now listen, the Bible's composed of 66 books, and it's divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. These books, were written between 2,000 and 3,000 years ago by multiple authors, all right, in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's important that we remember that the scriptures, they came out of different times and cultures that are vastly different from our own. So it's understandable that many people find the Bible just a little bit confusing, and they struggle with interpreting it. As we want to interpret what Scripture means in our own lives, we have to remember, listen to this, that nothing in the Bible was spoken or written directly to us who live in the 21st century. Remember, Jesus spoke to his disciples. He spoke to crowds. He spoke to various individuals who lived in the nation of Israel in the first century. Each writer of the books of the New Testament also had a certain audience in mind. (coughs) But even though these men wrote with a specific historical context to audiences just totally different from those that would be in the world today, and even though the words of Scripture may not have been written specifically to us in the 21st century, it doesn't mean that they weren't written for us. And that's what we have to remember. The authors of Scripture wrote to a specific audience, yet the truth of those writings is nonetheless for us today as well. And when we value Scripture as our starting point, it brings truth. Scripture brings truth. 
And if we're going to say that we want to use Scripture as our starting point, we need to open up God's Word this morning, don't we? And so let's, uh, let's look at t- together at uh, John the 17th chapter, and we're going to take a look at an account here. And So John 17, what we do is we see Jesus spending time in prayer right before the events unfold that will ultimately lead him to the cross. As we look at it, first we see Jesus praying for himself. We see that he's praying to God that God would return him to his former glory. And then he spends time praying for his disciples, and then he prays for all of those who believe. And I want to take a look at a part of the prayer where he's actually praying for his disciples, and so we have to keep it in that context. However, I believe as we read at it, because we see it at different points of other parts of Scripture, we know that Jesus is wanting us to know this as well today. And so let's read together John 17, 13 through 19. It says, But now I am coming to you. Jesus is is praying to God, saying, I'm going to be with you soon. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Listen to this. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their their sake I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in truth. So what we see here is that as believers in Christ, Jesus says that we are no longer a part of this world. He's saying our thoughts, our goals, our desires, our hopes should not be set on earthly things that are easily swayed by all the trends and all the fads that come about. But we need to be focused on Jesus. And we need to be focused on his everlasting kingdom. Jesus here, he prays that we would be sanctified in truth. Sanctification's meaning, it's it's, it's rooted in holiness Jesus is praying that the truth of God's word might infiltrate our whole lives in such a way that we are constantly and consistently becoming more holy as we walk each and every day in a relationship with him. It doesn't mean that we have to extract ourselves from this modern life of this world, but it does mean that instead we immerse ourselves in his truth, in God's truth, so that we might live in a way that's grounded in him. With truth as our foundation, we can become influencers of what is right instead of becoming merely influenced by the world around us. Being sanctified in truth means that we have to be actively and intentionally seeking the truth and learning the truth and letting the truth seep into our very lives. What we have to understand is God has a purpose for us. God has a purpose for his people. He has a purpose for his church that is grounded in truth over trend. The issue is, however, that in the world that we live today, it doesn't seem that a lot of people believe that there is an absolute truth. People want to believe the things that make the most sense to them. They want to believe in things that they like. They want to decide what everything means on their own, and unfortunately, this transfers over to the way that we actually look at Scripture. 
the way that we read God's word, we ask questions like, well, what does the scripture really mean to me? Or hey, what does, what does the scripture mean to you? Rather than looking at the biblical text to understand God's intended meaning of truth, too many people look for their own meaning of truth. Consequently, they misinterpret passage after passage of Scripture. When it comes to truth, we have to allow our beliefs to be shaped by what God actually said, not by what we wish he had said. I think one of the greatest temptations we face is to try to fit the Bible to what we believe, rather than getting our beliefs from the Bible. Too many people, what they do is they twist the Bible around to what they believe, rather than going to the Bible to find out what is really there. Some people only look for verses that agree with their beliefs. They start with their own conclusion, whatever it is that they really, really believe, or whatever it is that they really, really want to be true. They don't really worry about what the Bible says. They don't worry about what the Bible means. They just start with what they want to be true. They skip over everything that seems to disagree with them. They memorize and quote scripture, only the verses that say what they want them to say. They ignore and skip over verses that may prove them wrong. Anything that might challenge them to think, anything that might challenge their belief or make them scratch their head and possibly ask, you know, well, maybe... I might not be getting this all right. Sometimes we go to the internet and we read what all those experts have to say, but typically only the ones who agree with us. Last Sunday I had the opportunity to teach one of our next step classes, and the second class is called What We Believe. And in this class I had the opportunity to share why we value Scripture as our starting point here at BCC. You know, at Bettendorf Christian, we strive to build our beliefs and doctrine from Scripture in its original context. We believe the Scriptures are our ultimate and trustworthy authority for faith and practice. This means that everything else we learn from God and His world and all other authorities should be interpreted in light of Scripture. Once again, we should not take our beliefs to the Bible in an attempt to find verses to back up what we believe. Rather, we should take our beliefs from the Bible and let our doctrine be molded and shaped by what we see in Scripture. It's important for us to realize that God's Word gives us everything that we need for our theology. Biblical words must be interpreted in light of their sentence the sentence in light of its paragraph, the paragraph in light of the literary unit, the literary unit in light of the complete book or letter, and the book in light of the whole Bible. We have to understand something. Scripture cannot mean what it never meant. Some of us, we want to pray for God's will, and we just kind of open up the Bible, and we just start kind of pointing and looking and trying to figure out what it is that we're supposed to do. I heard this story one time about this guy that wanted to do just that. He wanted to know what God's will would be for him in his life, and so he did. He just opened up the Bible, and he just blindly you know, pointed down at the Bible. Interesting thing, he put his finger right down on the word gold. And so he went out, and he invested in gold. And guess what? He was blessed. He ended up with a lot of money in his pocket. And he said, well, this, this works pretty well. <laughs> and so he started kind of flipping around again, and he pointed, and, and it said silver. <laughs> and so he went, and he invested in a lot of silver, and he was still blessed by it. 
Well, he told this to a friend one time, and so the friend decided he was going to try it. So he went and he, you know, opened up his Bible and he started pointing around, and boom, his finger landed right on the book of Romans. Listen, this is not how we read God's Word. We don't just look in there and try to make it fit what we think it should say. You know, when that happens, when we choose just what we want from a passage, when we don't really read the whole thing in context, verses can absolutely say what you might want them to say or maybe what we don't want them to say. You know, if we just took half of a scripture, Hebrews eleven six, it actually says it is impossible to please God. If we just take half of it. <laughs> because the whole thing says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Or if somebody just wanted to take part of Psalm 53, 1, it could say there is no God. There is no God. But if we read the whole verse, it says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's just a little bit different. Wouldn't you agree? And obviously it makes sense here, but this is what we do. We look for words or we look for just little sections. Listen, we have to read Scripture in its context. I think it's important that we understand at Bettendorf Christian Church, we also always want to be willing to give up what we personally believe for the truth of God's Word. This is our call to be teachable, and it's our call to always humble ourselves to the authority of Scripture as we continually submit ourselves to the truth of God's Word. We need to acknowledge our own capacity for errors as humans. We need to possess a deep-rooted conviction that believing the truth is more important than believing what we want to believe or what we like to believe. Listen, we need to start with Scripture, not our feelings and not our traditions. This is the foundation on which we can build unity as a church family. And this brings us to our second reason why we value Scripture as our starting point here at Bettendorf Christian Church. Because Scripture brings unity. Being like-minded in the way that we view Scripture creates unity among God's people. Last week, Derek shared this passage out of Philippians chapter 2, but I want to look at it again. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and he says this in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is calling for the church to be unified. But today, the world and even the church is so divided in what we believe do you believe it was ever God's intention for there to be so many denominations within his church? Do you think it was God in, God's intent that there would be so many church splits and so much backbiting in his church amongst Christians? One of the saddest things I ever heard of was this church that actually split. People left the church because of the color of the carpet. They didn't get the carpet they wanted, so they left. And I used to think that was the silliest thing, but can I just, I made a mistake this morning. I got on Facebook. <laughs> That's just the worst thing to do before church, but maybe, honestly, in our today's time, maybe the worst thing just to do, Period. Because all I see any time I get on is fighting. You believe in masks, I don't. I believe in vaccinations, you don't. 
this is my political view, you're wrong. And that's what we do. Can I just ask for just a moment, what would happen in our world today if we as Christians got more passionate about sharing the word of Jesus with people than we did about trying to get our points across on social media? And listen, I'm going blue in the face up here. Because this is something that I know I've talked about. I know it's something Derek has talked about. But people still continue to do it. And I'm just as guilty. I'm not the one who's sitting there arguing with people online. But my mind sure isn't having pure thoughts. Anytime I read something that somebody disagrees with me, I know the first thing that goes through my mind is that's an idiot. And that's what I do. And I still get on there. I make the mistake a lot. And then I go and I read every view of politics that agrees with what I believe, and I get more and more fired up. I'm just as guilty. But when are we going to actually stop saying amen and start doing something about it? Could you imagine what our church could be doing right now if we started focusing on what really mattered? If we got unified behind what Jesus Christ has called us to do in his great commission, which is to make disciples? Some of us spend way too much time arguing over nothing. Jesus Christ has called us to love one another. He didn't say, oh, if they agree with you. He said, love people. Be a unified church. Because what's happening, it's scary. When we look at the early church, Acts chapter 2, did you see that they all believed, all who believed were together and had all things in common? They were unified. They were of one mind. This is why we have to start with Scripture. We must start with the truth of God's Word. We have a serious problem in our world today. Not just our world, it's infiltrated the church. There's a huge sin problem and it's called selfishness. We want to make everything about us. And what's starting to happen is we're starting to see things that were written 2,000 years ago coming true in our day today and it's happening on our watch We're the church today that Jesus Christ has called to make a difference. But listen to this. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4, Paul writes this. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I don't know about you, but I think we're there. We're there. Because we have people in this room right now who are arguing with each other on Facebook. And we're not taking the gospel message of Jesus Christ seriously. I don't know about you, but when I stand before Jesus and I'm held accountable for every action I've done and not done, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, why in the heck are you arguing with everybody on Facebook? 
But that's just me. According to Dave Kinnaman's book, Good Faith, we're living in a world with a new moral code. And this new moral code, which is the morality of self-fulfillment, is summed up in six guiding principles, he said, and here they are. Number one, define yourself, look within yourself. Number two, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. Number three, to be fulfilled in life, pursue the things that you desire most. Number four, enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Number five, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. And number six, things the Bible says are sin, well, they're okay for me because God loves me and God forgives me. And the problem is this morality of self-fulfillment, it's everywhere. The scary thing is we are being bombarded by it all the time, and most of the time we don't even realize it. Doesn't matter where we turn, whether it's in music or movies, maybe in video games or the apps we use, commercials, TV shows, every other kind of media, YouTube, Facebook, every other social platform. We're constantly hearing the message that to be fulfilled in life, we have to pursue the things that we desire the most. Or enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. Me-focused morality is all the rage today. And the morality of self-fulfillment's even crept into American Christianity. Large percentages of practicing Christians embrace the principles of this new moral code. In fact, Dallas Willard, he writes about this in his book called Knowing Christ Today when he says, The worldview answers people now live by are provided by feelings. Desire, not reality, and not what is good rules our world. That is even true for the most part within religion. Most of what Americans do in their religion now is done at the behest of feelings. The quest for pleasure takes over the house of God. What is good or what is true is no longer the guide. And because of that, here's a huge issue. A lot of Christians have substituted a life that is changed by the gospel for essentially comfortable living. So think about all this in terms of of unity, or should I really say lack thereof? Because we live in a world where if someone or something stands in the way of my fulfillment, that obstacle must be removed. That person represents the enemy. That person is the embodiment of all evil, and they need to keep their beliefs to themselves. But this is not what we see when we look into Scripture I want to look back at this passage from Philippians chapter 2, and this time I want to look at the first four verses. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what unity is supposed to look like. This is the kind of unity that can actually be found when we use Scripture as our starting point. When we look into Scripture and we actually use it as the source of our truth, 
what we find is that we should not be led by this new moral code, this morality of self-fulfillment, this code that is leading to all this hatred and division in the world today, and not just the world, but in the church. Instead of looking at its six guiding principles, we need to use scripture as our starting point. So very quickly, I just want to remind you what those six principles were and then show you what scripture says. The first one was to find yourself, look within yourself. Well, scripture shows us that to find ourselves, we discover the truth outside of ourselves, and that's in the person of Jesus Christ. People should not criticize someone else's life choices was another one. But scripture shows us that loving others does not always mean that we stay silent. The third one, to be fulfilled in life, pursue the things that you desire most. But scripture shows us that joy is found not in pursuing our own desires, but in the giving of ourselves to bless others. Number four said, enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Well, scripture shows us that the highest goal of our life should be giving glory to God and his son, Jesus Christ. Number five said, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Well, scripture shows us that God gives people the freedom to believe whatever they want, but those beliefs will always affect society. And number six Things the Bible says are sin are okay for me because God loves me and forgives me. But scripture shows us that God has given us freedom, but that freedom should not be an excuse to sin. God has designed boundaries to keep us safe because he loves us and so that we can flourish as humans in this world. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between selfishness and scripture? Scripture, when we use it as our starting point, it brings unity. Once again, can you imagine what Bettendorf Christian Church could do in our community and in our world if we took the truth of Scripture seriously and we allowed it to unite us? We can make a difference. Listen, you're going to see the importance of unity as we continue throughout this series, as we look at other BCC core values we'll be looking at over the next couple weeks. We're going to talk about the values of the fact that relationships are our priority and generosity is our lifestyle. Now, I want to look at one more thing that can happen when Scripture is our starting point, and it's this. Scripture brings life change. It brings life change. And very quickly, I want to set the stage for two other values that we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. And it's devotion is our identity and transformation is our pursuit. Because when we value Scripture as our starting point, it absolutely brings life change. When we look into Luke chapter 4, we find this really interesting encounter that Jesus has with these two men who are walking along a road on their way to a small village called Emmaus. And, and to set the stage, this takes place after Jesus has died on the cross. After he's been buried, he rose again. But this is that 40-day period where Jesus is still on earth. He's alive, but he hasn't ascended up into heaven yet. And <coughs> these two men, they're they're walking along this road and they're, they're talking with one another about the resurrection, about how it has affected their life, about the excitement that they have. And in this moment, 
Jesus comes along and he joins their walk and he joins their conversation and he asks them what it is that they're talking about. Now these men, they're a little bit taken back because they just figured everybody knew about the resurrection and would be talking about the resurrection and would just assume that everybody's talking about the resurrection. But it says that these men, they did not actually even recognize who Jesus was because it was kept, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus, he begins to walk with them and he begins to tell them about himself. He begins to talk about the Old Testament and how he has fulfilled scripture. And as we pick up, this is where it says in verse 28. So so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He being Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, uh, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Listen, there's a lot of great things that happen here. But what I want us to see is when Jesus explained the scripture to them, it says that their hearts burned within them. Their hearts were stirred. When is the last time that your heart was stirred or your heart burned because of the word of the Lord? The thing is, every time we open up God's word, it should lead to that. Every time we open his word, we should be stirred. Our hearts should be changed. Hebrews 4.12, it tells us that the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When our hearts are stirred, life change can happen. I once heard a story about this Christian young man who went off to a secular university. And while he was there, he was paired up with this young Muslim man. They became roommates. And during their time together, they became really good friends, and they would often stay up late and their conversations many times would turn towards their religion. And one night, the Christian young man, he he asked this Muslim if he had ever read the Bible before. And the Muslim young man said, well, no, I haven't, but can I ask you a question? Have you ever read the Quran? And the Christian admitted that he hadn't, but he says, I've got a really good idea. He said, why don't we start reading those things together? We'll alternate We'll read some of the Bible and we'll discuss it. Then we'll read some of the Quran and we'll discuss it. And over the course of that year, that young Muslim, he gave his life to Jesus Christ and he began to believe. But the night it happened, he actually kind of came busting through the door of his room and he, he kind of was joking, but he, he yelled at his roommate. He says, you've deceived me. And the Christian roommate, he says, what are you talking about? He says, Well, I've been reading through this book just like you told me. And I just read that the word, it's living and it's active. Listen, you knew all along that the Bible contained God's power. While this Quran is just simply a book, he says, listen, I didn't have a chance. And this is the truth of God's word. We don't stand a chance when we allow it to speak into our lives, when we allow his word to penetrate our hearts, we cannot help but be changed. To know God's will and to follow his truth, 
to be unified with the body of Christ. We need to open up his word because it changes everything. It will change everything about your entire life. And let's just be honest. Some of us really need that. Allow God's word to do that. And that's why here at BCC, our first value is that scripture is our starting point because it brings truth and it brings unity and it brings life change. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that it can be our starting point to bring us unity and to bring us truth and to bring us life change. Father, forgive us when we allow our beliefs to be based on the things that we want, things that are not based in your word. Help us all to learn how to approach scripture with an open mind and an open heart. God, help us to get involved in Bible studies and small groups and things where we can be challenged by each other. Help us to be here at your services to worship you, but also to hear your truth being preached. God, I pray that you'll hold every leader here at Bettendorf Christian Church accountable to always start with your word because it's truth and it changes life. And God, we want to be unified. We want to make a difference in this world. Please forgive us where we've fallen short. And God, please encourage us to do better. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.